economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne H. Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Bernard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We also have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, our other graduate assistant, Luke Graham. Well, a few weeks back, we started this conversation on being strategically irrational, and somehow timeshares got brought up. And I happen to be an expert in timeshares, <laughs> but I don't even know how it relates to this topic. So, Justin, you're somehow going to call me irrational, I'm sure, because that's with every show almost. So take it away. <laughs> Tie in timeshares and strategic irrationality. Russ, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I want to talk about the way sales pitches work for timeshares and kind of tie this into a kind of freedom that we all have as individuals that I think we sometimes forget that we have. And note how that this freedom can actually sometimes, uh, we can use this in our benefit. So I don't know if anybody has sat through a timeshare presentation before or been tempted to participate in a timeshare presentation. I have sat through no less, and I'm serious, no less than probably 25. Yes. Never, ever even considered this. (laughs) So I recently got asked to do one when I was at Cabela's a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't end up uh, signing up for it. But the way these things usually work is you are offered a couple nights vacation, extremely reduced price, something like, you know, a hundred bucks for like two nights at a nice resort. And we'll throw in a show and a dinner and you can bring your family or whatever. And the only catch is that you have to sit down and listen to a presentation by one of the sales reps at this resort, because they are trying to sell timeshares, which is, you know, you know, a two week ownership in a property that you can come visit for two weeks out of the year or whatever. And so obviously the sweetener to get you into the door of this presentation is this free vacation, right? And so it's supposed to seem, and it usually is a great deal for you to take this vacation. Now, what happens, and this has happened to me when I've participated in these timeshares, is you end up in a room with a more or less very aggressive sales representative. And I come from a sales background. I did business business sales for three years in between grad and undergrad. And the most aggressive one I participated in, I sat down with my girlfriend at the time and you get this presentation about why, you know, it's actually in your best interest to buy this timeshare. So what they do is they start asking you a bunch of questions. How much money would you say you spend on vacations yearly? How much money would you be willing to spend on vacations yearly? And then they say, well, okay, given that you do spend this amount of vacations, of money on vacation yearly, and you would be willing to spend this amount of money on vacations yearly, and this is what you like out of vacations, wouldn't it make more sense for you to spend less money than you currently our, spend Our on product vacations? is free, basically, yeah. right? Our product will satisfy those things that you like about vacations, and it will do so for less than you're currently paying for vacations. Isn't this a no-brainer? Now, in the situation that I was in, 
you were sitting on a chair that had balloons coming out of the back of it. And you're in a room. Uh, it was my girlfriend and I and a salesperson. And every group of one or two people had their own salesperson who was giving them the same pitch, you know, of course, tailored to their financial situation and the things they wanted out of a vacation. And of course, you know, everybody's, you know, it turns out, you know, lo and behold, this time share works for everybody, right? <laughs> and not only is everybody in the same pitch, but whenever somebody signs, somebody comes up behind us popping the balloons on the chairs and everybody applauds, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this big, like, peer prep, like, oh, I get to be part of something cool Part of too. the family. Now, immediately as somebody who is a curmudgeon and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hates this kind of like rah rah let's all be part of the team thing uh, my alarm bells are going off like crazy right and and being in sales you know, you know that part of what you want to do as part of a sales pitch it's like a philosophical argument what you want to do is start out by saying you agree to these premises right which is you have this amount of money you want to spend this amount of money here's the things that you want to get for that amount of money and then you slowly close the doors until there was only one rational thing for you to do, right? Which is why when you're doing sales, you say, okay, you said this, this, and this, great. Well, we have this solution, sign on the dotted line, right? Let's do this. And for most people, I think the reason these sales tactics are so effective is because most people say, oh my gosh, well, I guess I have to do it, right? This is what... I said this, these things are still true. It's only logical that I do this, right? Mm -hmm. And what I want to remind people is you don't have to be rational. (laughs) And so, or check, I was waiting for check your premise uh, or check your premises. You can go back and check your premises, but a good salesperson is going to show that even if you change your premises in a certain way, they still lead to this. So the one thing you can say is you can agree to all the stages of the argument. You can say, yeah, you're right. I agree that it would be rational for me to do this. And they go, okay, well, we sign on the dotted line and you go, no. (laughs) (laughs) And when I did this, it drove my salesperson insane. Um, (laughs) And you laid it out just like you just did, I suppose. Yes, it looks completely rational, but my answer is no. (laughs) Yeah. And so this actually goes back to something you can find in the tortoise and Achilles, which is in Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. And in this little anecdote, tortoise and Achilles get in a foot race, right? And, you know, the tortoise says, I think I, I can beat you. And Achilles goes, I can beat you. And then, so they race and Achilles crosses the line first and he goes, I won, right? And the tortoise goes, I don't see that. And Achilles goes, well, wait a minute. We agreed that if I cross the line first, I must have won, right? And the tortoise goes, yeah. And Achilles goes, and I crossed the line first. And the tortoise goes, yeah. And Achilles goes, well, then I must have won. And Achilles and the tortoise goes, I don't see how that follows. <laughs> and Achilles goes, okay, let me just make this look. If I cross the line first, I won, right? And the tortoise goes, yeah. He goes, well, I crossed the line first. Yeah. Then I must have won. And he goes, I don't see how that follows. And And Achilles eventually ends up going, okay, well, let's add another premise. What about if you agree that if I cross the line first, I must have won. And if you also agree that I 
did cross the line first, then you would also have to agree that I would have won. And the tortoise can go, sure, that extra premise seems valid too. And then Achilles goes, okay, well, then I must have won. And the tortoise goes, no, I'm not sure. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I want to punch this tortoise. <laughs> yeah. Now, what you're describing is exactly what the salesperson the sales you have said. It's great. Towards me, right? Yep. Because no matter what, I just went in there with the claim, I'm not going to do this mm-hmm. no matter what, right? Yeah. Now, this also shows up in some existentialist philosophers like in Fyodor Dostoevsky's notes from underground where he talks about the danger you know the the kind of threat that an increasingly rational and increasingly understood world can pose to our conception of ourselves as free human beings Hmm. so he says look what it means to be free is to be able to decide between two different options and if the world continues to get more rational, that is, if we get more and more accurate information about what our choices mean, and if rationality is supposed to be constitutive in the sense that, you know, rationality is supposed to always guide our actions, then rationality is going to be a kind of constraint on what we can do, not to help us choose between actions. So in Notes from Underground, his conclusion is, well, uh, if I have to choose between freedom and rationality, I am going to choose irrationality just to prove that I'm free. So in, in that book, he ends up, you know, he doesn't go to the dentist just because he knows he should go to the dentist. And his tooth pain is some kind of like badge of honor for him because it proves his freedom that he is this kind of person. So this, yeah. I, I can't help but think a little bit. I, had, I didn't even want to bring, bring COVID into this, but it sounds like, yeah, I know I should get the vaccine, but I don't want to. And that's a part, is that a part of this argument a little bit? Or is, an example, I should say? We talked about this a little bit in a past podcast where, uh, you know, I said the whole notion of rights are things that the government can't force you to do or can't violate, even if it would be in your best interest right, right. for you to violate yes, them. That's true. Yeah. And so I think yeah, that I this think is definitely too. related, right? Mm-hmm. Is it rational to quit smoking? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You should quit smoking. It's not good for you. Nonetheless, do we think that you have the right to smoke? Yeah. Yeah. As long as you're not blowing it in your baby's face or something, the secondhand smoke, there could be an argument there. But yeah. Yeah. In general, yes. To the degree that healthcare becomes more and more socialized, right? The argument is that it imposes a cost on everybody else. That's right. right? So if you value this idea that, you know, we have rights, that also entails that you need to take responsibility for those actions too. But, okay, so I'm hearing you, you shouldn't be really using reason to define freedom in a sense. Like we, we shouldn't go back and say, oh, we should be a free people because this and this and this is the consequences of, the, of a good free people. That's kind of, we're using, reason can start to constrain your freedom. And so freedom leads the way and reason supports it. It is just to point out that these two things don't always go together, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of freedom and what reason tells you to do, those things can be in conflict. So I'm going to push back a little bit, Justin. I think you probably can somehow agree with this, but also not. So we'll see you're out here. 
is that, uh, and this is recency bias, I've been reading a, a book by Tim Keller, Every Good Endeavor is uh, part of what I'm doing for one of my classes. And Tim Keller uses this great uh, analogy to explain the problem with the traditional American, or not traditional, the more recent rather, American conception of freedom. And the analogy he uses is, is a fish free when the fish escapes the water? That is, uh, or is a bird free if they decide to plunge themselves into the ground and smash their head against the ground? Keller's point is, or, or his argument is that freedom actually isn't freedom from all constraints. It's freedom within the constraints that enable you to live a good life. And th so this is like sort of a classic natural law argument to a certain extent. And so I'm, I'm curious uh, because I would think that you would be someone who would agree with that. Maybe you don't. But I certainly think that that's a strong argument that like it is not freedom for a fish to be out of the water. Is it really freedom to do things which make our life worse? You sound like a timeshare salesman. <laughs> <laughs> so, is it really freedom if you're not signing on the line to get this music, Peter? So you know it's in your best interest. So my, I think you can. You don't need this. I, this argue, I think this is a good strategy. It's an effective tool for dealing with people. I almost see this like commitment to irrationality as a tool, but it's a commitment to a tool because you're not capable of dealing with a salesman, and so. Something else that we can know to be true is that the timeshare can't literally be a good deal for everyone, right? But we also know that everyone in the meeting, the salesperson is going to try to convince them to. And so long as you know the timeshare is not good enough for everyone and you are good for everyone, and you know that let's assume that all the salesmen are better than the people in the chairs at persuading, all you need is those two facts to say, oh, okay, so even though I don't know which of my premises are wrong or you know which of the ways that I'm not thinking about this right, I can assume that at least some people in this room, and maybe I'm one of them, are being falsely persuaded. And then that's enough to just say, well, I might as well pretend to be irrational so that way I don't make the mistake of being fooled. So I don't know what you think about that. I guess this goes against Dostoyevsky here, which I hate to do, but what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, in Notes from Underground, in which Dostoevsky lays this out, in the first part of Notes from Underground, we get this theory from uh, the underground man, right, where he talks about, you know, his toothache being a, mar a badge of honor, right? The first part is meant to be read sympathetically, where you read like, oh, maybe this guy has a point, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then in the second part of the book, he starts telling about stories from his life, and you realize this man is actually just trying to justify this horrible life that he's lived, right? Mm. So Dostoevsky is not advocating for irrationalism. Okay. Um, he's actually kind of showing where a commitment to irrationalism might lead or what tragic events in your life might have befallen you to make you think that being irrational is always a good idea. So I think when most people, and especially most contrarians, read Notes from Underground, in the first part, you realize, you think, this guy's making a lot of sense. And in the second part, you start to read it as a mirror of like the worst parts of your life. And you go like, oh no, I hope I'm, <laughs> I hope I'm really not like this, right? Because <laughs> this is embarrassing, right? So I don't want to advocate for, you know, hey, you should always be irrational, right? True. What I am saying is that 
strategic irrationality <laughs> is a tool yes. that most people don't realize is at their disposal. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, this looks like a good spot for our break. I will say as a person who does not really believe in irrationality, <laughs> I will give the listeners some reasoned arguments to get out of that timeshare pitch because I have done at least 25 and I always am able to come up with a reasoned argument. So uh, real quickly. Have you ever bought the timeshare? I have. Okay. Yes. Right. <laughs> Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at gordoninstitute.org. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have a movie night coming up here at the university where we're going to do a screening of the House of Cards to bring up the issues of cronyism and how big government and big business uh, playing kissy face is no good and it's certainly not capitalism as we envision it here at the Gordon Institute. If you or someone else is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. All right. So the cliffhanger was, how do we get out of this sales pitch? And so the first thing is to think about the time. So as Justin said, they're going to lead you down a path of, do you like to travel? How often do you travel? So the often you travel, if you do once a year, then that's going to open the door for them on, we have this alternative. So staying with family is another way out of that one, by the way. But if you have already admitted that you stay in a hotel or once a week you go to California and you do some sort of hotel resort slash type visit, then that's going to check that box for them. And then lead you down the path of, yeah, this deal is uh, cheaper. And so my wife and I bought our first timeshare in about 1995 or 1996. And so there's maintenance fees, and but we actually were very satisfied customers of timeshare. We traveled all over the nation. We had a resort in Iowa that we never stayed at. We just did it to do the trading. And so anyway, it worked for us, but we were very flexible with our, with our ability to travel and when, and that helped greatly. Otherwise, you do have to open up your pocketbook a little bit more. I think we spent 5,000 bucks for that first timeshare and used it quite a bit. And then we ended up going to Cancun where we bought our second timeshare, but it, the second really was a trade-in of the first. That was the beauty of it. And so we are happy owners down at the Palace Resort chain and Hard Rock Hotels down in Cancun Riviera Maya. And so that one has worked out great for us too. So, but each time we've gone on little trips along the way, I have said no plenty of times. And so the time element, since we already owned the timeshare, we said, oh, well, we, we don't have enough time to do a second week, right, to buy another timeshare. So that, that worked pretty well. There'd still be some pressure that you had to say no to. And then the latest one that was more recent in my life, where I, I believe in the Dave Ramsey system of uh, not taking on personal debt, is the catch is, oh, I don't have the money. Oh, no worries. We got zero money down and a payment plan system that looks like this. And you just say, oh, sorry, I don't do debt. I'm not taking on debt. And so once you take the financing element out of their world, then that's a pretty reasoned argument that they can't overturn very easily. 
Well, it sounds like, though, that they could make a very rational argument for why it's in your best interest to take on the debt. And if you just say, sorry, I don't take on debt, that's like saying, I'm sorry, I'm going to be irrational. Uh, <laughs> True. There's probably some rational arguments there, but I think I could, I think Ramsey does a good job of throwing back other reasoned arguments of why you don't want to go down the debt path, dealing with uncertainty in the future and blah, blah, blah. But I'd say most people aren't equipped to throw that back their way. So I get you there for sure. I think I want to. And by the way, I find, I, sorry, I had to just say that I find Justin's argument very liberating as yeah. I found in other shows. I listen to Michael Jackson now. So <laughs> thank you, Dr. Clark. You have liberated We all know me. how irrational that is. Yes, yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, I, I think I had never thought of this before either. I think that a function of our mo- modern schooling is to embrace, and I'll say a certain kind of rationality. I think I want to, for our listeners, give three forms of rationality here because Russ said he doesn't believe in rationality and there's a way in Irrational. which- ir- Irrationality. rather. <laughs> Some people don't believe well, in rationality. I believe no. it exists, but I don't believe it's a good way to live your life. Okay. Let's put it that so, way. Some people, and so <laughs> I would say in certain- definitions, like in economics, for example, I don't believe there's any such thing as like being irrational in the way that economics talks about it. Because to me, in economics, when we say rational, we're saying purposive, or in other words, you're acting with a purpose. You might not be right, you might make mistakes, but you're acting with a purpose. So in that sense, I don't think anyone can ever be irrational. There's another form in economics of rationality, more mainstream, which is like people are on average correct. This is like a a second form of rationality. This is called rational expectations. And so that's another form of economic rationality is people are on average correct. I'm less convinced by that one. Correct about being maximizers, right? Correct about the, that the action they'll take will maximize their utility. On average. So some people will be wrong, some people will be right, but for the most part, human beings make the rational choice. And, and, and that's what allows our economic models to work in a lot of cases. Exactly. And so the one interesting result of this is what's called the winner's curse. And so th- this is a good way to think about it is like, if there's a distribution of people who like believe that they know what the value of a good is at an auction, and some of them think it's lower than the actual value. And some of them think it's higher than the actual value. And, you know, on average, they're correct. Well, that implies that at every auction, you're going to have the one guy who value, overvalues it the most be the one who wins. And so no matter what, the winner is worse off. And so that's you know one way you can think about like what it means to have a distribution of people who are on average correct. I think thirdly is what just, Justin's talking about here is rationality in the sense of defying sort of like a almost like an enlightenment reasoning way of thinking about like, well, you should pursue these things that we can prove to be in your best interest through a combination of like evidence and logic and all these other things. And so, you know, I don't think we even have to talk about those first two forms to say like, I think that this is a great tool to deny like this sort of like assumption that everyone has that, well, if I can't win the arguments, then it must be the other person's right. And therefore I should go with it. I think what Justin's saying in response is like, just because you can't win the argument doesn't mean you're not right. And so it's totally fine to disregard the argument and say, oh, no, I just don't see how that follows. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Let me stipulate even more what I mean by this kind of rationality, which I think is your third type of rationality, yeah. which is rationality as the idea that we can make our reasons and our values public and understand and publicly understandable. Yes. Uh, and therefore, our motivations have to be rational in this sense. And I think it's perfectly fine to say of the things that we can make publicly understandable, it might seem like I have to do X, right? Mm -hmm. But no, I'm not going to do that. 
And I actually think this ties into like a, a faith component here. Yeah, I wanted to. I'm glad you're bringing that I up. I think that, yeah. and this ties back into Kierkegaard a little bit. I think that on some conceptions of faith, and these happen to be some of the ones that I like, these are just the things that we can't make publicly understandable. Mm-hmm. And yet these are features of the way we act that people think are some of the most important reasons for why they act. And I hate to turn wine back into water here, which is a little bit what I'm doing, <laughs> if you don't understand the reference back from our Kierkegaard pod- podcast. But I, I think to a certain extent, and so here's my wine to water, I think to a certain extent, everybody has to be able to do this. I don't think anybody likes that they do this, but it's true. There are a lot of things that you in your life act on that you don't fully understand why you're acting on them. You don't, you're not equipped with all the knowledge to verify that this is going to work out for you. And yet you do so anyways. So mm-hmm. no one likes this feature of reality. And maybe people don't internalize and understand this feature of the reality. But the fact is that you oftentimes in your life act in a way that you wouldn't be able to verbalize why you're act- acting in that way. You wouldn't be able to reason through it and maybe convince someone the reasons behind the action. But the action, as we know from economics, still has like this semblance of rationality of a sort. Yeah, as Justin was talking and what you just supported is the idea of, I think, tacit knowledge that there's something more there than you can actually maybe even verbalize or make public, but it's a gut feeling from your accumulated experiences of life that that's why you're saying no to the timeshare person, right? It's just, and you have the freedom to do so. Yeah, and that if I mean, what you guys are both saying I think is correct. And that our ex post discussions of why we did what we did are often rationalizations, not the reasons themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And if listeners, if you're unfamiliar with tacit knowledge, which Russ brought up the example that I like, there's different forms of it. And this gets a little contentious, but the example I always like is riding a bicycle. Like how do you express to someone how to ride a bicycle in a way that they will know how to ride a bicycle when you tell them? And I think the answer is you can't, like you can't actually explain how to ride the bicycle in the way that someone can read it or hear it, and then they'll be able to ride the bicycle. Like part of the knowledge is in the experience of actually doing it. And so by definition, that knowledge can never be codified. It can never be turned into language. It can never be put into a computer. You're never going to have the instructions. And so if this sort of knowledge exists, we shouldn't actually be able to, you know, expect that we can express everything that's true. There are just some truths that aren't expressible the way that we normally are used to expressing them through our words, through our writings. Tell me you can't ride a bicycle without telling me that you can't ride a bicycle. <laughs> you can ride a bicycle, Justin. <laughs> well, I wanted to also bring up with uh, your wine to water. I think we do things on faith that we've listened to our mom or dad or pastor or priest. And, and so, you know, why do you believe in God? I just do. And you go on doing something and where where my wine back to water thing would be is that there comes a point in your life where you now have evidence and maybe it's through other people's words or something that you start to question that decision you did five years ago or whatever of, of your belief system that maybe you just took lock, stock and barrel on faith. And now your faith is getting kind of refined, you might have to do a little more digging, like, well, I just believe that God was there, but what what does the Bible have to say about this? And you start doing some reasoned arguments that, yes, there was a man named Christ that was outside rulers even acknowledged that he lived, right? Or, you know, and go back through 
kind of the knowledge that we did have. I think this is a really interesting point you're making, because I think if we pull it back to what has now become a metaphor of our timeshare sales pitch, <laughs> sometimes you don't have to do that though, right? That's the response is like, there are certain times, Yeah, I agree with you, by yeah. the way, that when you take things on faith, sometimes the rubber hits the road and someone like hits you with something that you can't think of a way around. But if the timeshare pitch rejection method that Justin is pitching is a useful method, for getting out of the timeshare, which you know might be not be valuable. It might be a useful method when you don't know how to address someone's criticism of, of your beliefs. Like sometimes you might not be able to respond to some point, like maybe you open the Bible and you just, you can't find a verse that like makes you comfortable with what they said. And at that point you can take the Kierkegaard leap of faith and say, eh, that's okay. I still believe it. And I can't actually explain to you why I don't think you're right, but I don't think you're right. Yeah. So, and I think what maybe you both are hinting at. And what I think is true is that this is a card that you can't play all the time. Yeah. Right? I don't want to be denigrating rationality. Right? I think rationality <laughs> right, is right. extreme. I was questioning that a little bit. Taking it towards the enlightenment yeah. over here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like I teach logic classes. I was thinking <laughs> of rationality, a card right? you, you play very um, rarely. Maybe. I can't explain to you why I got named your class, <laughs> but I did. Yeah. To even be understandable by your fellow humans, you have to be mostly rational most of the time. Yeah. But the demand that you always be rational in the sense of your actions always have to be guided by this publicly available calculus of rationality, that is something that you don't have to uh, accept. And you can play this card from time to time. That's the point. And the point is that don't forget that you have this card. Well, how does this play into today's situations? Uh, Again, I hate to drag COVID back in, but I think, Justin, I've heard you speak about freedom and we just have to you know, mark our, put our flag on, on freedom at some point or liberty, but I'm not sure how we can always articulate that because we're getting all these reasoned arguments back. But if this country was built on freedom and the, the potential that it's okay to be irrational, I mean, how, how can we, is this a, is this a place where we could explore more to get people back to being, let's call it freedom lovers, maybe in the way we've been historically in the past? Yeah, I think you just have to point out that there are cases where safety and freedom are going to conflict. And yeah, in those cases, I'm comfortable choosing freedom more often than not. And you can also point out that these so-called, you know, often when you are told, look, it's reasonable to do this, right? Because some oracle of rationality has determined that this is actually in your best interest. It's also great. It's great to be able to say, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. And you don't have the right to force me to do that. Yeah. But it's also good to be able to say your oracle of rationality has a track record of being terrible. And so uh, that's one of the most important things I think we can say right now is that for the most part, all of the same people who are telling you what's in your best interest is X. We're telling you 12 months ago that what is definitely in your best interest is not X. Mm -hmm. And if you can point out that the oracles of scientific rationality have been contradicting themselves and that they actually aren't oracles of scientific rationality, they are just mere, they're just mere authorities. That is, they have been given powers by the state. Yeah. And I think, that's a better way. I think that's the first card you should play is you're wrong about this being 
yeah, in their best interest. I, I think this is a, a really interesting point because there, there's a great paper on oracles, I believe, by by Peter Leeson. And he has a, a lot of research program also about uh, the trial by boiling water. And his point in the trial by boiling water is like once upon a time, the way we decided if someone was guilty is, and this is the story, is that the criminal would put their hand in boiling water. And if God said that they were innocent, they would come out and be unscathed. And so people say, oh, this is crazy. I can't believe this was ever done. And what Pete Leeson says, no, not crazy at all. In fact, at the time, it was impossible to discover if someone was actually a criminal, you know, according to the, the scientific evidence, yeah, like yeah, we didn't have forensics or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, right. And so you weren't going to get the right answer that way. And so instead, what you could do is you could tell the criminal and maybe fudge the truth or, or maybe, you know, the way it's set up, you don't actually know this is happening, but you could tell the criminal you're about to put your hand in boiling water. Surely you believe in God because this is the Middle Ages, or at least a lot of people did. And God's going to protect you if you're innocent and not if you're guilty. Well, the guilty people might be willing to say, I'm not going to put my hand in there. I know I'm going to get burns. And so, you know, I, I'm just going to confess. And this did frequently happen. People said, no, I don't want to go through the trial. I'm going to confess. Hmm. But people who are innocent and believe in God will say, okay, I'm going to put my hand in there. And it turns out there's a lot of reasons to believe that by the time they put their hand in there, the boiling water wasn't boiling anymore based on how the thing was set up and everything like that. Oh. And, you know, maybe the priests who set up the trial knew, maybe oh. they didn't. Uh, but the point is an innocent person might be willing to do that. Now you might say, you're going to get some false positives though. You're going to sure. get some innocent people who are too afraid and they're not going to do that. Maybe the innocent people don't believe in God or they, they're not, you know, thinking God's going to protect them from this, even though they're innocent. And the answer is, Yes, you still get false positives, but you have to compare that to the alternative. And the alternative was no forensic evidence. And, you know, what does what the jury know? Uh, so this was just the best thing that there was at the time. And so I think the, the point that Justin's making here is good is that, you know, if your oracle is like the second best oracle or third best or, or 10th best, if your oracle is always wrong, then sometimes a coin flip is better. There really are cases where if you prove yourself to be wrong consistently, do X, don't do X, do Y, don't do Y. People don't have to have a, a rational oracle response to this. Maybe, you know, they've just decided, well, because I wore a red hat a few months ago, I'm going to say no to these things. Like that doesn't seem like a very good oracle, but neither did the trial by boiling water. And it happened to be. Well, I think this looks like a good spot to kind of wrap up with just a few more thoughts. I'm hearing a slogan, it's okay to be free or something. And then just now I was thinking Nancy Reagan's just say no. Something real simple, like like Justin did a great argument at his, the council meeting. Um, if you haven't seen it on Twitter, listeners, uh, we, we pumped it out. And uh, you made a very reasoned argument back. So it's like you were fighting reason with reason. And I, I think what we've kind of circled back to multiple times with the podcast in different ways is that freedom looks differently than that. And it's okay to be free. And I suspect in this country, the people who aren't vaccinated now we're reaching that point where they're, they've heard all the reasoned arguments and their answer is still no. And I think if we are a free society, we need to learn to live with that. I mean, maybe they will have some restrictions on things they can't do or can't do, but to sit here and continue to either badger them or whatever is, is infringing on their rights to be free. So any last thoughts? I think that people should... Try saying no and realize how much fun it can be to <laughs> tell somebody no. There's a great character in Melville's short story, Bartleby the Scrivener. And he takes this job and people ask him to do things at this job. And he just continually says, I would prefer not to. Uh, 
And I think that's a good, yeah. you know, Bartleby, of course, plays that card too often. But remember, that is a card that you have in your pocket and you can always play it as a last ditch. You effort. can play it. You have the right to play it in the United States. I had Pete Leeson as a professor one semester and one comment that he made consistently and you could tell he truly believed it was that if everyone believes something, you know that they're all wrong. <laughs> uh, I don't think that that actually uh, is either what he believes or is like, you know, consistently true, but there is some grain of truth there <laughs> that when all the masses are heading one way, it's very valuable to consider the other way. And there's a lot of danger in just joining that group all going one way. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. We thank you all for listening. Be sure to tell your friends and family about us if you like what you're hearing and give us a five-star rating on the internet. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.